You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith for Locked On Seahawks along with Rob Rang. Happy Wednesday. Thanks for listening in. Today's show is brought to you by Built Bar, the delicious protein bar with less sugar, less calories, a bunch of really great flavors. Make sure to go to BuiltBar.com and you can get $10 off your first box with the code Locked On. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. Rob, we have had chances to talk about this numerous times during the offseason. The Seahawks currently only have two quarterbacks on the roster. Obviously, Russell Wilson's your undisputed starter. But then you've got Anthony Gordon, the undrafted free agent out of Washington State. They just gave him pretty good money for an undrafted free agent. And some of that has to do with the fact I'm sure there were other teams competing for his services, more so than necessarily saying that that's a given he's going to be on the roster. But they currently don't have a veteran on the team. We've kicked around this name a few times already this offseason, and we drew the ire of a lot of fans in 12's Nation. But there seems to now be some more plausibility to the idea that Cam Newton might be open to joining the Seahawks as a backup quarterback. Yeah, I mean, Cam himself has said, Corbin, that, that he's you know willing to at least consider the idea of being a backup quarterback. And that in itself is significant. I mean, if of course, we, we all remember what a, what a dominant player that he was in helping Auburn uh, win a national championship. Of course, number one overall selection, former NFL MVP. So that, that's a, that's a big-time declaration by, by Cam Newton. One of the biggest arguments that, that I had, at least, uh, against his signing with Seattle is the idea that, that can he be uh, you know, just mature enough to handle a, a possible backup spot. I think the Cam Newton is absolutely uh, a candidate that Seattle should consider just because this is such a good football player. Um, and if you are really going to believe in what Pete Carroll has preached the entire time about compete, 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 and trying to make this team better, then sure, it, it makes a lot of sense to bring Cam Newton into the fold with the understanding, obviously, that Russell Wilson is your starting quarterback. And that's really the key here, isn't it? We talked about this a few weeks back, and it was more speculative back then that if the Seahawks were going to look at Cam Newton, you, you need to talk to Russell Wilson first and just make sure he's okay with it. And I think Russell Wilson would be if you went up to him and said, look, we're just bringing in a quality backup quarterback that has started a lot of games just in case somehow you go down. Your job is not in jeopardy. And, and it might bring out the best in Russell Wilson, bringing in a guy that was an MVP back in 2015 that is going to be pushing him you might even get better production out of Russell Wilson from that. So I think there's a lot of good that can come here as long as it's clear. And I think Cam Newton would know this going in. I'm not taking Russell Wilson's job. This is his football team. But I argued a few weeks ago that I was in favor of this, and I still think it makes a ton of sense. I know there are fans out there that don't like the man. I get it. He's done some things on the field, the way he carries himself, not necessarily a beloved figure in Seattle, but this is a guy that I think gets a bad rap. When you look at some of the things he does off the field, he, he's an extremely charitable person, does a lot of things for people. I have had issues with his sportsmanship over the years, but I think that this has been a little bit of a wake-up call for him, just listening to some of the things that have been going around lately. I think he's understanding that I'm coming off an injury-marred season. I only played two games last year. I'm 31. My style, I'm a running quarterback, might not play well into my 30s. So teams are hesitant to sign him. Then you got the whole COVID situation that's made it difficult for him to get physicals with teams and things of that nature. So I think it's been a little bit of humble pie for him in this process. And I think he's understanding that if I want to play right 
right now, I'm probably going to have to take a backup option and go into Seattle. Obviously he's not going to be seen to feel without Russell Wilson getting hurt, but this could be a situation where the Seahawks can do what the saints did with Teddy Bridgewater and maybe working with Brian Schottenheimer, you can improve some things for Cam Newton as a passer and he could go back on the market next year when hopefully the coronavirus is completely dissipated and we got a vaccine and all that kind of stuff that he's going to have a lot more interest going back on the market next year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Seattle is taking full advantage of these types of players on these one-year prove-it type of deals. I mean, obviously that has not happened at the quarterback position. And, you know, presumably if Russell Wilson is your starter, and obviously his durability has been, you know, really impressive throughout his, his college and NFL careers, then, then I don't know that, that Cam Newton and other backup quarterbacks that makes a lot of sense for them to come to Seattle on a one-year deal because, again, you're, you're not anticipating that he's going to play much. But at the same time, I thought that it was fascinating, Corbin, that you mentioned the New Orleans Saints specifically. But rather than Teddy Bridgewater, I think more like a Taysom Hill type of a guy in that you, you can be able to, to create a couple of snaps a game where, where the Cam Newton's just physical talent can, can still be able to give you something. I mean, you know, the, the Seahawks and, and their focus on running the football right down the throats of opponents, Russell Wilson can't do that. I mean, he, he is such an elusive guy. He has, he has eyes in the back of his head, it feels like at times. But he's not 6'5", 240 pounds, the way that Cam Newton is. And so I, I think that it's intriguing. I, I do have some reservations about it because we talked about before with, with, with Cam Newton, we talked about before with, with Russell Wilson and, and the egos. But in terms of just making your football team better, then I think there's no question about that Cam Newton can do that. Yeah, and ESPN's Jeremy Fowler just put a little bit of gasoline on the flame uh, yesterday by saying that the Seahawks were going to be open to this. I love that you mentioned the fact that he's still a downhill runner, even coming off those injuries. If he was just a package player and you could bring him in for short yardage situations, teams couldn't completely gang up on him thinking he's going to run every time because you could run a bootleg with him and you know he can throw the football. So again, you would have to talk to Russell Wilson about that and just make sure he's okay with that before you even can. You don't want to upset your franchise quarterback. So you need to ensure that he's understanding what you're looking to do. And I think Russell Wilson, the winner that he is, the competitor that he is, would completely understand that. It's all about Cam Newton buying into being a backup, only seeing the field a few uh, plays a game probably, if that and getting him to buy into that lower contract, too. That's going to be the big thing. The Seahawks are not going to throw a bunch of money in a backup quarterback. They're just not going to. But it might be a little bit more money if it's a guy they think we can find some sub packages for. So it all comes down to Cam Newton's mindset. We'll have to see how this plays out. There could still be a team that emerges. I talked with the Redskins, uh, uh, Locked on Redskins reporter yesterday. Chris Russell has said that Ron Rivera has not completely ruled out bringing Cam Newton into Washington. And he knows their offense extremely well from all those years in Carolina working with Scott Turner. So there might be some other options there. But at the same time, the starting opportunities have dried up at this point in the offseason. And if he's going to look for a backup job, Seattle might end up being the perfect landing spot for him. And then he can hit free agency again next year. If somebody gets hurt, Seattle can dangle him for a mid-round draft pick. And Newton wouldn't be offended by that either. It's a chance for him to go play. And Seattle could do uh, what a lot of these other good teams are doing, harvesting quarterbacks. And it gives you some leverage if somebody else has an injury. When we come back for the second quarter, we're going to answer your questions in our Locked On Seahawks mailbag segment. Don't go away. You're listening to Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. 
As an avid weightlifter and distance runner, I'm always looking for an edge when it comes to nutrition, seeking quality-tasting protein bars without crazy additives. Since being diagnosed with celiac disease, my options have been pretty limited. Enter in the Built Bar, a low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, gluten-free protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar comes in 16 amazing flavors. My personal favorite is the peanut butter brownie, which is 20 grams of protein and just 3 grams of sugar and 3 grams of net carbs. Since I had my first one, I won't go without it before hitting my squat rack or going for a jog. All Built Bars are 100% chocolate, nut and gluten free, soft and easy to chew, and don't have the nasty aftertaste associated with most protein bars. Sound too good to be true? Go to BuiltBar.com and check out all their flavor options. You can build your own custom box and new flavors will be coming out May 10th. Try this delicious product for yourself and change your exercise game by using promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first box at BuiltBar.com. Welcome back to Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Rob Rang. Coming up later in the show, Patricia Traina of Locked On Giants is going to be joining us to talk about the Big Blue going into 2020, going to continue our NFC East crossover series. Let's get to the mailbag here first, though, Rob. Tons of questions from our listeners. First one coming from Seahawk Realm tweets, do you believe undrafted free agent Chris Miller out of Baylor has a chance to make the roster? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he's the hitter that, that we've talked about before. I know, I know that he was one of your favorite uh, of the undrafted free agents this year, Corbin, just because of that physicality. Uh, I mean, there's a number of guys. I mean, obviously, Seattle's track record of undrafted free agents uh, is one of the best in all of the NFL. And so I think that, that Miller is among those players who makes the most sense. I and mean, we started off by, by kind of talking about uh, Anthony Gordon, the quarterback from Washington State. I, I think at this point, and unless the Seahawks do something fairly bold and um, in, in free agency, whether that be bringing, bringing back a guy like a Geno Smith or, or perhaps with a, a more recognizable veteran um, like a Cam Newton, as we talked about. But until that happens, I think that you have to go with the Washington State quarterback, Anthony Gordon, is the most likely of the undrafted free agents to, can, to continue Seattle's incredible streak of, of finding these types of players. But if there is a, a second-tier option, I think that, that Chris Miller, because of his physicality, because of what he has shown throughout his time, uh, you know, throughout, uh, you know, throughout his career at Baylor, um, that he is the type of guy that, that could make sense for the Seahawks to stick. It's going to be a much tougher year for undrafted free agents to make any of these teams because of what we have going on right now. No organized team activities, no mini camps. Everything is being done virtually. That puts these players that are already at a huge disadvantage at an even bigger disadvantage. That being said, I've, I've said this a couple times on the show already since Chris Miller was linked to the Seahawks after the draft. This guy is a poor man's Marquise Blair. And what I mean by that, he's not the same athlete. Marquise Blair was a 4-4, 40 guy. Chris Miller is in the four sixes. He's not as fast. He's not as athletic, but the mindset is the same. And to the extent where he's been undisciplined at times, getting targeting penalties, I mean, down to a T, football player-wise, these two guys are very similar. Chris Miller will come up and he will stick you. I think he's a player that showed some improvements in coverage, but he's never been a guy that's a ball hawk. That's not his game. But I think he's somebody, when you look at his track record at Baylor, he wore the number three for them, which is a big deal. If you have a single-digit number playing for Matt Rule at the college level, he won't be able to do that in the NFL. But if you wear one of those uh, individual single-digit numbers, 
then you're a highly respected leader on that football team. And even when he wasn't a starter, he was wearing that number. So he was highly respected by the coaching staff. I think the Seahawks coaching staff is going to love him. I think he's going to be a scrappy special teams guy that can play some in the box. Again, very much like Marquise Blair. He's very lean in the lower body. Doesn't look like he'd be a hitter, but he'll come up and he will thump the daylight out of you. And so I think he's a Seahawky type safety. And without Tedrick Thompson there now, you've only got Lano Hill who's entering the last year of his contract you might want to have a young safety that you can develop there depth-wise, especially if he comes in and plays well on special teams. I think he's got a very good chance of making this football team. Second question from Luke tweets, speaking of Marquise Blair, possibility of Marquise Blair competing for the starting nickel role? Well, I I think there's a possibility. Uh, Just because that that starting nickel role, it remains to be seen what the Seahawks are going to do. You know, of course, uh, you you have a guy that you think is kind of the, the incumbent quote-unquote starter, and Ugo Amadi, who physically speaking could not be more different uh, than, than Marquise Blair. You just talked about with Chris Miller, kind of a long, lean kind of a guy that the Blair is, and Ugo Amadi is a short, squatty guy. Um, I think that, that one of the things that really sets up well for Seattle, at least in my opinion, is that they have a, a variety of players. They're almost you can kind of pick the guy that you want depending on your opponent. If you have a, uh, you know, kind of the classic slot receiver, uh, Julian Edelman, a small, quick guy, then, then sure. It, it makes sense to try to, to try to, you know, match up with a Ugo Amadi, a guy who is smaller and quicker. And then if you have a, you know, one of those big slot receivers or, or a tight end type, then yeah, Blair has that, that type of potential. At the same time, to me, as you were just talking a moment ago, Corbin, about Chris Miller, to me, that's what Blair fits in best. I think that he has the ability to be your free safety, and that's obviously what he did at Utah. I think that he has the physicality to play that strong safety role of the Seahawks. I'm not in love with him as a nickel corner. I do think that that is a position that he potentially could help you. But I personally think that the best nickel corner the Seahawks currently have is Ugo Amadi, and I would not be surprised at all if that is a position that Seattle looks to uh, add a little bit more veteran talent as we move forward in 2021 season. Yeah, I think they're still going to try to add a veteran to compete against Ugo Amadi. There's been a few names out there. Denard, who played for the Cincinnati Bengals, he's still available. Uh, That's a name that's been going around a little bit, but I'm not sure that I love the idea of him playing nickel either. Now, I could see the Seahawks, especially with how much base they played last year, them saying, okay, Ugo Amadi, we're going to be doing a nickel by committee here. You're going to be playing against those smaller slot receivers in certain pass situations we will bring you into the game. If you're playing an offense that has some really good tight ends, just like they did with Akeem King a couple years ago, I could see Marquise Blair being that big nickel. Maybe Trey Flowers plays that role too, since he's a former safety. And and now he's got Quentin Dunbar in his way for that number two corner spot. So Seattle's going to have options. They're going to have flexibility now Ken Norton Jr. just has to use all those chess pieces and figure out the best way to utilize his players. So I can see a by-committee approach here where maybe a player like Blair does get some opportunities, but I think they're still going to be looking for ways they can get him on the field as possibly a free safety or a strong safety. There's going to be some different stuff they're going to do with him to get him some snaps this next season. Caleb Brakey tweets, what does the Seahawks running back room look like after this year? After the, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, Chris Carson is, is uh, you know, en- entering his, his contract year. Um, you know, and so there's a possibility that, that you know, the Seattle retains him. At the same time, Corbin, you know me. I mean, I, that's one of the reasons why 
you know, for a long time there, I was projecting the Seahawks would take a running back fairly early in the draft because I think that if, if you were one of those people who has a real problem with the idea of investing an early draft pick in a running back, then you're really going to have a problem with investing a big-time contract in a running back. And if Chris Carson runs for his third consecutive 1,000-yard season, which I'm fully anticipating next year for the Seahawks, then, yeah, he's going to look to, to break the bank. And I just have a hard time imagining that the Seahawks would be willing to do that. So I think that Chris Carson is gone. Obviously, Evershaw Penny still under contract coming back from his injury. You have the, the Miami running backs that you've selected here recently in, in DJ Dallas and Travis Homer. But that's essentially it. And, and unless you feel very, very confident in what that Homer or Dallas or Rashad Penny brings you this past season, and you are feeling very confident that they are going to be your superstar at the, you know, in 2021, uh, I think their running back could absolutely be one of the biggest positions of concern for Seattle in the next year's draft. And, and so I, I think it's a great question looking ahead by our, by our listener. Um, and I think that that's a question that, that none of us unfortunately know right now, just because there are so many uh, loose ends right now to think about. The Chris Carson situation, it's such, it's such a difficult one to really have a grasp on what the Seahawks are going to choose to do there because they are one of the few teams that still loves to run the football, and obviously he fits their identity so well. And if he has another 1,000-yard season, his third straight, there will be some arguments in the front office about, well, if we can get the right price point here, we'd love to bring him back. That's really the big deal. You don't want to break the bank for running back, but I think it's going to be a discussion point. They're not just going to be like some teams and say, okay, we're just going to rotate to another set of backs. He's gone. There will be consideration for bringing him back. And so if he has an injury littered season, that changes things a little bit, maybe in both directions, because if he has some injuries, he might be cheaper to resign too. And so it's extremely difficult for me to have a grasp on whether he's going to be back. And we don't know what DJ Dallas is going to do at the next level. He's not the biggest breakaway athlete at the running back position, but he's versatile. He's a hard-nosed runner with quick cut ability that fits their system well. They like what they see from Travis Homer. I just don't see him being a feature guy. I think DJ Dallas has the build to be a feature guy more than what Travis Homer does. He's 15 pounds heavier. And he's short and kind of squatty. So I think he fits that mold of, as a guy that could run the ball more. But I do think next year's draft class, there are already some running back names that I've been looking at closely, me being the running back guy. And I think there are some players early that Pete Carroll and John Schneider could have a really tough time not picking in next year's draft. So I do think they will be investing in the draft pick at some point in running back. We'll have to see that the real wild card here is Rashad Penny. If Rashad Penny comes back healthy and has a fantastic season, then that changes the landscape of this position substantially. If he's unable to make a good comeback from that ACL injury, then there's even more uncertainty in your backfield. Look at our next question. Joel Elmer tweets, what are they doing on the defensive line? <laughs> the interior defensive line was not good last year. They lost multiple pieces and only re-signed Jaron Reed. Please help me understand their plan. <laughs> He's got a point because I thought by this juncture, they would have at least signed one of their veteran to bolster that depth chart. And yet, we're in mid-May and nothing has happened. Yeah, I think that it's it's I think it's difficult to compare this offseason to any before this, Corbin. I mean, I, I think that the Seahawks are among the teams who are, are very intrigued. I mean, the, the fact that they have so much salary cap space, I think is an indication that they are very much still looking. Um, but of course, they're they're also very concerned about bringing players in. I mean, you simply cannot bring players in right now to to do the types of, you know, the 
the medical evaluations, to have a conversation with the player, to get a feel for are they going to fit in with your franchise. And so I, I think that right now you're kind of on pause, uh, whether it be in free agency, whether it be in potential trades. Um, there are a lot of teams right now who are so up against the salary cap, and the fact that Seattle is not gives them a great deal of flexibility. But I, I agree with uh, the question. I think that defensive tackle is one of the positions of concern for Seattle. I mentioned nickel cornerback before. Th those are the two. Nickel corner, defensive tackle, I think – possibly backup quarterback. But I think that, again, because these are backup role for quarterback, then it's not nearly as important. But I do believe a nickel corner and another defensive tackle are, are very important for Seattle to acquire before the season begins. Yeah, they lost Quentin Jefferson. They lost Al Woods. They love to typically sign older veteran defensive tackles on one-year deals. And without the ability to bring in players like Mike Daniels and Marcel Darius – for physicals to make sure they're healthy. I mean, these guys are all 30 or older. I think still have plenty to give somebody as a contributor, but you need the physicals. You need the medical evaluations to make sure that that's a player that you want to bring into the fold. Even Damon Harrison, who hasn't really had injury issues, but he's 31. He's an older player. You want to make sure that he's okay before you offer a contract and try to sign him. And like you said, everybody's in a holding pattern because you can't bring players in for those physicals, at least right now, maybe by next month. It's just going to be a weird year. I can see there being a phase of free agency in like mid-June to early July. And you don't normally see that, but it would be created by the fact that teams have been hesitant to make moves here after the draft, just given the travel restrictions that we're dealing with right now. Jazz D tweets, rookies are flashy and sexy, but what about the second-year guys? What are expectations for the below players? They mentioned Ugo Amadi, Cody Barton, uh, DK Metcalf, several of the rookies in last year's class, and said, are there any players in danger of losing a roster spot going into 2020 from that class? From from last year's class, I guess the first person that, that jumps out at my, at my mind as far as being a guy who could lose a roster spot, and this is not going to be very popular in the Seattle area, but I my initial thought was Ben Burkirvin. Um, I Obviously, with Jordan Brooks, you, you make the selection of a linebacker in the first round. Uh, not that he necessarily plays the exact same position, but I, I was I was shocked, frankly, when, when Seattle made that selection of BBK. For, for, I mean, his production is through the roof. His, his workout also was phenomenal. There, there's so many things about him that he checks the box. But the Seahawks have an ability to actually – see these players they know if bbk has gotten bigger and stronger which i currently do not know i believe that if he is going to be a starter in the nfl then he does need to get bigger and stronger and and just given the work ethic that he showed earlier uh, or throughout his time at the university of washington as well in seattle i, I feel confident that he is there but at the same time to the, the you know the, to the question i think that he is one of the the so-called sophomores in Seattle that I think that you have to keep an eye on. I expect big, big things from DK Metcalf. I expect improvement from LJ Collier, um, as well as Ugo Amadi, Marquise Blair, Cody Barton, essentially everybody that we talked about. I think that Phil Haynes can potentially be a starter for you as well. We've talked about him also. Um, to me, it's not just about the second-year players. It's about the third-year players. I'm expecting a big jump um, from Rasheen Green. And so I, I think that it's – I. I think it's a great question. 
I think that sometimes we do focus too much on the rookies. And I think if Seattle is going to take the step forward that they have to, Corbin, to, to be a true Super Bowl contender, it's critical that those second and third year players do step up as the question asked. So for me, I agree with you on Ben Burkirvan. I think just with the linebacker depth that they've got, he just used a first-round pick on Jordan Brooks. It's going to be tough for him to hang around there. He's a very good special teams player. If he comes in stronger and bigger, then that's going to help his chances of sticking around. But I'm actually going to throw a name out here that we just talked about the position group not having much depth. But I think the Seahawks are going to sign at least one, probably more, veteran defensive tackles before this season gets started. I think DeMarcus Christmas is a player that's on notice. When when you're somebody that didn't play a single snap your rookie season, he spent the whole year on the pup list. He is not a great athlete. This is not a pass rushing defensive tackle. He can play that nose position. He can defend the run. So if he's able to do that stuff at the NFL level and he stays healthy, then they'll keep him around. But I think he's a player, especially if they go out and bring in somebody like Damon Harrison or Mike Daniels, they could maybe sign Marcel Darius, Brandon Mebane, bring him back to Seattle. There are a number of veterans that I think are still really good players that are available. As we mentioned, it's just been a physical issue that's made it they can't sign these guys. But I think they'll sign one or two players like that, and it's going to put a player like DeMarcus Christmas on notice. Now, he could rise to the occasion. If he does, that's fantastic news. you got a young tackle that you can develop there behind Puna Ford and Jaron Reed. And year two, you probably don't want to give up on it, but – if he doesn't make the strides you're looking for and he's not contributing in the preseason and training camp, then he could be a guy that ends up on the practice squad or just washing out completely. Last question here real quick. This is a good one to wrap up with. Did have a chance to ask you about games since you weren't on the schedule episode. Jacob tweets, other than the divisional games, which games are you looking forward to most on Seattle's schedule? It is a great question. I, I, I look at late in the year um, and you know, as you mentioned, I mean, all of the all of the divisional games to me, the the most exciting aspect of Seattle's schedule is always the divisional games, just because I, I love the 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 rivalries with the 49ers and even the Rams and Cardinals to some extent as well. But I look late in the year, and I like the back to back games uh, against the New York teams, the, the Giants, which is perfect because of course we're going to be talking with um, you know the Giants locked on Seahawks followers and, and as well as the Jets in, in week 14. So you have week 13 Giants coming to Seattle week, week, excuse me, week 13 Giants coming to Seattle week 14, the Jets coming to Seattle. You have young quarterbacks, which I think that that Seattle potentially could take advantage of. And if all you care about as a Seahawks fan is victories, I think these are two infinitely winnable games. The other thing I like about it is the fact, Corbin, of course, we've talked so much about the Seahawks and how they have to travel across the country. I like the fact that you have a couple of East Coast teams that are traveling to Seattle late in the year all the way across the country themselves. Again, to me, it it is a a nice way to to kind of get into the late portion of the season, hopefully develop a little bit of momentum. So if Seattle is, as we all uh, or at least a, le- a lot of our listeners are hoping the Seahawks are going to be con- are, are going to be competing for a playoff spot. Hopefully, those types of games can give you the positive momentum that you need to walk into the playoffs with a bit of a roll of steam. And I mentioned this when I was doing the show with Nick Lee immediately after the schedules came out. But just to dive a little bit deeper into this, two road games in the AFC East intrigued the hell out of me in Miami Week Four. I'm kind of hoping that Tua is somehow in the lineup because everybody wants to see Russell Wilson versus Tua. 
bringing in a guy that had drawn some comparisons to Russell Wilson while he was at Alabama. If he's healthy enough that he can play, I think Fitzpatrick's going to be your guy. Who knows how long, though, that leash is going to be for this team, especially with the moves they made in free agency. I like the rest of the draft class that they have, bringing in a tackle in Austin Jackson that can protect Tua or whoever's back there under center. They got a, a nice defensive end out of Boise State and Curtis Weaver on day three. They made a lot of picks I really liked. I just I think that team is ascending. I don't know if they're going to be ready to compete in that division just yet, but I think they're going to be kind of like the Cardinals were last year where they're a pesky team you don't want to play every week, especially late in the year. That's the one advantage for Seattle. You're playing them in week four instead of like week 14 when this team could be ascending. Last year they won five of their last nine games. I could see them doing something similar in 2020. And then the game at Buffalo. I, I just think if Josh Allen makes even a – slight step forward with the defense they've got you add Stefan Diggs in the receiving room there they've got a new running back in Zach Moss I love the coaching staff they've got there I think Buffalo could be a dark horse to get to the Super Bowl in the AFC because of that defense if Josh Allen can take the steps forward that's going to be the big key for them if he flatlines then their ceiling is going to be limited but if he's able to make some strides in year three Buffalo's going to be a really good team that's going to be a tough game playing in Buffalo and it's late enough in the year I'm not going to rule out snow coming down. <laughs> so, so there's always the chance for the elements to play. And so I'm looking forward to both those games because you don't get to play there very often. I think both those teams are trending upward right now going into 2020. When we come back here for our final quarter on the Locked on Seahawks podcast, I'll be joining Patricia Trena of Locked on Giants. We'll be looking at the New York football Giants. How are they shaping up going into the 2020 season? Don't go away. You're listening to Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Podcast Network crossover series, NFC East versus NFC West. We're going to continue our tour around the NFC East today with Patricia Trena of Locked On Giants to take a look at where Big Blue fits into the division race, gearing up for 2020. Patricia, brand new coach in New York. This entire division, except for Philadelphia, is going to be breaking in new head coaches. They're going a bit of an unconventional route. The Baltimore Ravens have had pretty good success with John Harbaugh, who took the same route going from special teams to head coach. What are your early impressions to this point on what Joe Judge is going to bring to the table and what he's trying to build in New York? I'll tell you what, Corbin, I like so far what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing from Joe Judge. He's very straightforward, you know, no BS. He gives it to you the way it is, and he has a vision. You know, a lot of coaches come in, especially new head coaches, and they kind of feel their way as they go. Joe Judge has never been a head coach, as you know, but he's been a, a special teams coordinator, has worked under Belichick. He's worked under Saban, two of the best coaches of their, their generation. And Belichick, uh, I'm sorry, and, and uh, Judge, you can see, has taken a little bit from each of those guys and, and, and their programs and how he deals with the players and how he deals with the media and how he puts together a football team. And what I really like about him is the assistant coaching staff he put together because I felt the last two head coaches of this team, Pat Shermer and Ben McAdoo, their assistant coaching staff probably wasn't as strong as it could have been. And I think that makes a huge difference. And I look at the, the, the staff that Judge put together. He's got four 
one-time head coaches, two at the NFL level, two at the college level. He's got educators. I think it's something like six guys majored in some sort of education, um, guys with college connections, guys with pro connections, really a strong staff. And, and that's got me excited because given the, the, the state of the times with this you know, COVID-19 forcing everybody to work virtually, I would be a lot ner- more nervous, I think, if this were maybe Pat Shermer's staff coaching up these guys and teaching them as than I am right now with, with judges staff. So overall, this guy, Joe Judge, has gotten passing grades for me. It's interesting you mentioned that with the COVID stuff, because coaching staffs that have more experienced coaches on staff, guys that have been through the rigors of an NFL season, the Giants have added a bunch of those guys to the staff. Judge knows that with his first head coaching job, having the right people around him is going to be critical, especially so right now with all these meetings being done virtually. Some of the players I've talked to actually are really enjoying this, though. That being said, not having the on-field work certainly is going to impact all the teams whenever they finally get on the field field looking at the roster right now I remember chatting with you about this we were doing our Maven mock draft a few weeks ago there was clear emphasis on the offensive line trying to improve the tackle position and New York first pick overall fourth overall brings in Andrew Thomas out of Georgia so they get one of the best tackles in this draft class and then they doubled up at the position in the third round with Matt Parrott, who was one of my personal favorites coming out of UConn, kind of raw, but incredibly long arms, an athletic tackle prospect that could play either the left or right sides. They're, they're getting two young tackles that they can bring in and they can mold to protect Daniel Jones up front. What, what are your thoughts on how the Giants have handled that, also adding in Cameron Fleming as a free agent addition on a one-year deal? Well, I don't know if you remember, but when we did the mock draft for the Maven, who did I pick for the Giants, right? <laughs> so I'm going to pat myself on the back there because I did pick Andrew Thomas. But um, look, I love what the Giants have done with the with, with the offensive line. I have been screaming for I don't know how many years about the offensive line and how they have taken shortcuts with free agents, how they have taken gambles, how they haven't really – you know, they devote they devoted some high, you know, some premium draft picks to the position, but just not enough, in my opinion. They were hoping, you know, to find the next David Deal, David Deal being a fifth rounder who went on to be a starter right out of the gate and who played multiple positions. And I, I just think, you know, before Dave Gettleman came on board, the Giants got a little bit lazy when it came to the offensive line. So I am absolutely thrilled that Dave Gettleman has finally addressed the offensive tackle position, which was has been like a, a, an Achilles heel, Achilles heel for this team for the longest time. And it's going to make a big difference because now they're going to give um, Daniel Jones an opportunity to, to actually run a vertical offense, which offensive coordinator Jason Garrett is believed to be installing. It's going to make Saquon Barkley's uh, life a little bit more, a little easier, you know, to where he doesn't have to fight and scratch and claw for every yard he, he gets. So I, I just can't say enough good things about what the Giants did in the draft. I love all these picks and I can't wait to see what they, you know, end up playing. Yeah, three of the top five picks for the Giants were offensive linemen. This year's draft, more than any other draft, was an absolute crapshoot. You just didn't know where guys were going to go with the loss of pro days and Uh, all the other things that have gone on with travel restrictions, limiting meetings and things of that nature. Let's talk that 2019 class now. 
Daniel Jones obviously was a surprise sixth pick. A lot of people didn't expect the Giants to draft him, and yet they didn't. He had a pretty solid rookie season with 24 touchdowns and just 12 interceptions. Considering the offensive line that he had in front of him, as you mentioned, they've taken care of that with two picks in their top three going to the offensive tackle positions. They had three first-round picks. Dexter Lawrence, DeAndre Baker also being selected. And then in the third round, O'Shane Zimenez out of Old Dominion, who had four and a half sacks, kind of came on late in the season. Where do you view this 2019 class in terms of development coming into their second year with the Giants? You know, it's interesting. On the uh, Giants country site, the, the Maven site that I were on, I did a whole thing, a whole article on expectations sec- for the second year uh, veterans on this team. And I- I'll start with Daniel Jones. I won't go through all the picks, but I'll start with Daniel Jones. What He, he did have a, a pretty good rookie season, but he has to clean up the ball security issues. That was a big thing. And I think part of the problem with him is that when he dropped back in the pocket, he was so oblivious to the pressure around him because he was so locked in on what he was doing downfield that, you know, he took the hand, the second hand off the ball, didn't protect it. We spoke with him on uh, Wednesday, as a matter of fact, on a video conference call. And he said he has been putting a very big emphasis on fixing that so that putting the second hand on the ball becomes second nature to him. You mentioned O'Shane Zimenez. I like this kid. And by the way, we call him X-Man because, you know, I know a lot of people have trouble with his names, but um, we call him the X-Man. Just a really, really sweet kid. Um, Showed a quick first step that often reminded me of OCU Manure. And it's interesting because Mm -hmm. he told me OCU Manure was a guy he idolized growing up. And he said that, you know, he aspired to be like. So I I saw the similarities and I remember telling OC about it and, and then telling O'Shane about it. And, and he was just absolutely delighted that I made the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the correlation between the two. But the thing with O'Shane Zimenez is he's got to get stronger and he's got to be a better anchor against the run because right now he's a one-trick pony. And the Giants, they like their defensive uh, linemen and, and their edge rushers to be able to hold the edge against the run as well as bend the edge and, and get around to the passer. Um, O'Shane Zimenez will get there. You got to give him, you know, a little bit of a slack because he is coming from, like you said, a smaller school program at ODU, but uh, very, very uh, optimistic about his future. And I think the other guy you mentioned was DeAndre Baker, the cornerback who the Giants traded up actually with Seattle to get, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, exactly why I mentioned him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, DeAndre Baker is interesting. You know, a, a lot of people will look at the beginning part of his his season last year and they'll say, oh my God, what, what did the Giants do? This guy's a bum, etc." Two things about DeAndre Baker I'll point out. Number one, this kid suffered a knee injury midway through training camp that wiped out a good chunk of of his on-field work. And it showed when he finally did get on the field. You know, there was, you know, I go back to week one against Dallas last year and, and how he split time with Antonio Hamilton, who, you know, no disrespect to Antonio Hamilton, but he did not belong on it on the field for, with the defense. He was he's a special teamer, so that was done because I suspect the coaches weren't sure of if um, DeAndre Baker was going to be able to hold up physically. But the other thing I saw with DeAndre Baker that kind of was a red flag for me is that 
you know, I would see him in the locker room and I'd see, you know, some players would have their noses in their playbook or they would be studying or whatever. And he'd be sitting on the couch and he'd kind of be sleeping or playing on his phone. And I thought to myself, dude, that is not a good look. You, you know, do something, talk to a teammate, go study your playbook, you know, look, look at, do something. And if somebody from the media comes up to you, you know, then you interrupt it, but don't sit there like you're sleeping. You know, I get it. Look, it's a long day. We all need a nap once in a while, but this, this seemed, just seemed to be every day in the beginning. Now to his credit, somebody must've gotten to him and, and he wised up because in the second half of the year, which is when he started to play better, he was actually, um, I, I didn't see him playing with his phone or playing the, the various board games and stuff that Pat Shermer allowed in the locker room or, or, or just basically loafing off. So I give him credit for that. I do think there's definitely room to get better. Um, and I think last year was a wake-up call to him that Getting to the NFL is only part of it. You have to now figure out how to stay in the NFL. And I don't think DeAndre Baker at the time really understood that. I think he does now. Looking at this division last year, there was last few weeks of the year looking like a possibility that this might be a repeat of the NFC West back in 2010. And there might actually be a division winner with a losing record. The Eagles finished off hot. So they got to nine and seven. But this division seems like it could be pretty wide open. The Eagles and Cowboys have talented rosters but certainly the other two teams the Redskins and Giants have added pieces the Giants in particular have a really solid young quarterback to build around they've got one of the best running backs in football they just upgraded their offensive line and they made some nice moves on the defensive side of the ball in free agency including adding cornerback James Bradbury formerly of the Panthers what do you think is the ceiling for this team the best case scenario for the Giants and what would be the worst case scenario in Joe Judge's first season at the helm well, the one thing that kind of makes me a little nervous because we've heard this before and we've also seen the results is when on defense, the Dave Gettleman and the coaches talk about, we're going to generate a pass rush via scheme. Well, that's what they told us the last two years with James Betcher and it just didn't happen. And Betcher, you know, as you, you, you may or may not know, had a lot of his former Cardinal players who were responsible for his defense you know, being a, a, amongst the top ones in the NFL a few years ago with the Giants. Didn't have everybody, but he had quite a few, and, and, and the results still weren't there. So I look at Patrick Graham, who was a very good coach, but then again, I look at what happened in Miami, whose pass rush was worse than the Giants last year. I think they were dead last in sacks, and I know they had um, – I want to say about 30 fewer quarterback hits than the Giants did. And I sit there and I say to myself, okay, was that Graham's defense or was that Brian Flores' defense or a combination of the two? And, you know, I, I also got to, you know, to be fair to Graham, you got to give him a pass because they traded away a lot of guys. But still, you know, don't tell me, oh, it's going to be through scheme. And, you know, because that's that's kind of like saying, well, we don't have the personnel to do it. But now with that said, I think the Giants, because they put such an emphasis on building up the back end of the defense, they are hoping that perhaps the cornerbacks and the safeties can hold their coverage a little bit longer to allow the defensive front, which I say is the strength of the Giants team, period. Um, so allow them to hold that the coverage and that way the defensive front can maybe generate that pass rush and get the pressure and get the sacks 
because there were too many times in the past where the defensive front would just barely miss the quarterback because the back end wasn't holding up their end of the bargain. I think that's the approach the Giants have taken, and I think that's what they're hoping for this year.